Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Last episode, we spent time laying out our initial translation of the full text to Paul Clay's 1923 essay, The Paths of Nature Study. Now, Unless we hear a considerable interest from out there in podcast land, we'll wrap up our analysis on the essay in this chapter. The 20th century has so much yet to offer. Next episode, we will move to Louis Sullivan's 1924 swan song of a book that managed to take on the following 80 years in architectural theory and hide it in plain sight. As we hope to demonstrate today, the study of nature as Clay understood it is a core component to pursuing design as expressive and pragmatic morphogenesis, a process that Sullivan likewise, albeit distinctly, espoused. The main reason for ending analysis of Clay's essay with this episode is the possible sequels have so many paths they could follow. Nature study deserves the treatment of a finely edited book more than a stringer of episodes. But even the briefest outline of the cornucopia that this essay opens up raises questions on dualism, cybernetics, parametrics, as well as on the differences between nominalism and realism, sense versus intellectual perception, the visible and the invisible, phenomenon and noumenon, novelty and innovation, revolution and evolution, bottom-up and top-down composition and conceptualization, configuration space and necessary paths, as well as on the intersection between artist, camera, and the machine, and that of man and God, God as creator, Man as co-creator, man dissolved in God transcendent, God as man resolved immanent. And that is only the bundle of twigs picked up from roughly the first half of that short essay. If you have further interest in any of those or other topics from the essay, please send us an email to info at lapsuslima.com to tell us what you'd like to hear or read more about. For now, we'll focus on the juncture between camera, machine, and artist. At the storm eye of his tightly wound theory, Clay was on the ground as a painter, teaching at an art-focused trade school for architects and designers. In 1923, the Bauhaus didn't yet have the pre-baked reputation that generations-thick survey courses now weigh upon it. 
students and professors were still wrestling with, among other questions, two major themes that were actually the opposite sides of one same coin. Mechanical production and mechanical artistic reproduction. In design, industry had steadily and decisively taken the human hand away from the process of making by amplifying and accelerating the speed and force of human capability through the use of ever more complex and capable machines. This technological development put new weight on the mental faculties. From a rug to a chair all the way up to a cathedral, in centuries past, the hands of skilled workers were put to work and supplemented any decisions taken by the client or designer with the knowledge on how to best midwife an idea from the concept through the cora of process and into its concrete realization. Historians and architects alike have disagreed on how wide to set the compass of this transition, but by the 1920s, highly skilled handcraft had been starkly displaced by somewhat less skilled industrial labor. It was intellect that had to rise to the occasion and, at first, it dozed off as design adopted new technology and analytical techniques to straightforwardly create grandiose magnifications of what had once been more natural modes of expression. This sleep of reason produced nightmares like the 18th century's beautiful yet structurally unstable Saint Geneviève of Paris with its massive use of iron reinforcing. The late 19th century allowed real estate speculators to turn an unremarkable trading hub on the southwestern shore of Lake Michigan, whose buildings rarely went to six floors, into a patchwork forest of towers, more than doubling the common height of what would one day be known as a skyline in under 15 years. Meanwhile, traffic teemed on the city's often unpaved ground, and the increased volume of sewage spilled into the drinking supply. The ever-densifying, skyscraping population only got cleaner water when the municipal sanitary district reversed the flow of the Chicago River in 1900. Love them or loathe them, many of these disruptive changes had been introduced in an environment in which the attitudes to design had remained the same while the new facts of production had been tearing the old rules to shreds. People like Sullivan, Wright, 
and Los all pointed to how new buildings being ornamented as if they were old buildings was proof of a mental defect. Indeed, it seemed for a time, as the Beaux-Arts and Art Nouveau styles competed for attention, that the more industrial facts on the ground changed, the thicker the layers of ornament grew. The late 19th century arts and crafts movement, to be held up in the mid-20th century by Niklaus Pevsner as one of the key sources of modern architecture and design, answered the industrial challenge by going into total denial. They walked away from industrial processes completely in a desire to preserve the economic and spiritual vitality that had been fading as handcraft was sidelined. And this pious refusal, this holy no, came to mark the first intellectual start from zero to be noted by Hermann Mutesius before the World War and later expressed within the curriculum of Walter Gropius's Bauhaus. From early on, the Bauhaus held workshops in handcraft skills, painting, glassblowing, metalwork, wood carving, and weaving amongst them. But, if not immediately, it became increasingly clear that this time spent in hands-on work was not the way to create a new generation of skilled artisans in the model of the Wiener Werkstätte or the Glasgow Art School. The decisive synthetic contribution of the Bauhaus was that this education of the hand was instrumental in the transformation of the soul. The problems of industrial building would never be solved by designers whose minds remained unaltered from the habits of the past. This distinction cuts to the core of why Clay was so insistent to observe that today's artist is more than a refined camera. He is more complex, richer, and more spatialized. The amplified power of mechanical process had drawn, and some today would say still draws, the vital agency out of the role of designer. Just as the tradition of painting had, before the modern explosion, become largely an imitation of the visual, a mere representation of the past, architecture had become an almost automated concatenation of dissected elements from earlier cultures. Change happened so quickly that European civilization was bent past the point of breaking. It no longer had 
a native art and architecture, and was left regurgitating its own past or abducting exotic styles from the colonies. Along with the indications of what appeared to be innovation, or at least novelty, the West was scrambling to close a widening gap that had opened up between how technology allowed people to live and what civilization was capable of digesting. In episodes 31 to 34, we examined Walter Benjamin's argument that mechanical reproduction in art raised a strident challenge for the empowerment and militant reorganization of politics. Art is not, as he argued in the 30s, something to be politicized to usefully combat the artifice of fascist spectacle. However, we do feel that 20th and the prospective path of the 21st century history has, and is, demonstrating that a highly developed industrialized society that is led and populated by those who have not grown past the nationalist strivings that served liberty and progress in earlier centuries can, without exaggeration, threaten the survival of the species. Benjamin's specific call to arms aside, Clay's own interest in the camera, contrasting it to the evolved artist, suggests a glimpse at his vision of the intellectual and spiritual transformations that industrial challenges demanded. An apparent lesson is that the artist and a designer should not merely imitate, never reflexively capture. The camera is like a mirror that can be frozen. It creates images of a given perspective according to the parameters of specified inputs. Sound familiar? Soulless architecture is a camera in reverse. And how many projects start with an image and strive to hew as close to that image as possible? How many designers allow and how many clients demand the architect to be one who pushes buttons, pulls levers, and pops a building out as automatically as possible? The challenge that Clay points out is the potential, or, in the mind of someone such as Benjamin, the dire imperative, to take the role of the creative individual beyond that of an unthinking camera and into the realm of tuning or balance. Clay followed up his comment on the camera by saying that the artist is a creation on the earth and a creation within the whole, 
that is to say, a creature on one star among stars. If the artist was merely a creation, he would be only a camera. To borrow from the Leibnizian model of life and consciousness, a camera has life and awareness insofar as it has a sort of perception, a cause and effect, even a memory. But humans have something a camera lacks. Consciousness. What Leibniz called apperception. In other words, we are aware of the fact that we can perceive. We can think about thinking. And this awareness is what leads to agency. The extent of what we are aware of is intimately tied to what we have control over influencing or control over reacting to. It is the scope of human consciousness as driving human agency that brings us past the fate of mere machines. And that, for clay, is the second step in breaking away from the doldrums of industrialism, the first being what he termed the essential condition of being in a dialogue with nature. What could be considered a third step, the never-ending road to mastery, involves much of the remaining body of the essay which we read last episode. We have the winding paths of nature study, the natural object, the created object, and the step-by-step -step expression that unfolds as nature study provokes an ever deeper understanding within the designer. Coming from clay, this was the vantage of a painter hired by an architect to educate and evolve other architects and craftspersons. What would a similar argument, indeed a similar guide to study and problem-solving, be like if it came from an architect, aimed at revolutionizing design for an audience of designers and lay people alike? Such a book was published one year after Clay's essay Across the Atlantic by a once great man ailing at death's door. Join us as we open up Louis Sullivan's A System of Architectural Ornament According with a Philosophy of man's powers. Next time on Lapsus Lima.